Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Antonio Neves, and welcome to episode 33 of the Best Thing Podcast. In this episode, I have a phenomenal conversation with Marcus Buckingham. You're going to hear more about him and his background in a moment. But in this episode, he talks about how as a kid, he overcame a major speech impediment. Particularly, he had a stutter, and he shares a story about how he overcame that and how it transformed his life. There are so many key takeaways that are going to help you as well. I can't wait for you to hear it. Hey, if you're listening to The Best Thing, you're not the only one. We are hitting the charts across the globe. If you haven't had the moment to hit subscribe, do that right now. If you're loving this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. That's how we're going to get more people to listen to this. So thank you for listening. Uh, The last thing I want to let you know is, hey, if you've been going through the motions in life, If you've been on cruise control, you're just operating like a robot and it is time for you to stop living on autopilot and take back the steering wheel of your life. I want you to go into the show notes right now, click on a link and sign up for the Stop Living on Autopilot free mini course. All you have to do is enter your email address and over the course of the next week, you are going to receive three powerful video lessons that cost you absolutely nothing. So make sure you swipe up and go into those show notes to learn more about that. Last but not least, I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear from you so much that I would like you to send me a text message. You can hit me up at 310-564-7124 and it would be so good to hear from you. Let me know what you think about the show who you would like to hear on the show, and any other feedback that you have. You can even just give me a text message, high five. I would greatly appreciate that. Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where we talk to thought leaders, creatives, authors, and entrepreneurs about how sometimes the best thing to happen to you is the most unexpected. Welcome your host, Antonio Neves. Hey everyone, welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where I talk to people about the best thing to happen to them that doesn't include the traditional markers of success. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm a speaker, author, and coach. And each week I bring on a new guest who has a powerful story to tell that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. This week's guest is someone whose work I've admired for quite some time. And earlier this year, I had the opportunity to share the stage with him and I was absolutely blown away. Marcus Buckingham is the author of two of the best-selling business books of all time, has two of Harvard Business Review's most circulated, industry-changing cover articles, and has been the subject of in-depth profiles and major outlets, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, The Today Show, and The Oprah Winfrey Show, just to name a few. Marcus is CEO of the Marcus Buckingham Company, and is known as the world's most prominent researcher on strengths and leadership at work. His strengths assessments have been taken by over 10 million people worldwide, and today he leads research at the ADP Research Institute. Marcus is author of nine books, and his latest release is Nine Lies About Work, a free-thinking leader's guide to the real world. Marcus Buckingham, welcome to The Best Thing. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you making time. And I mentioned that we shared the stage earlier this year in Washington, D.C. And 
I'm fortunate that for the past 10 years, Marcus, I've shared stage with a lot of big, notable names. And one thing that I remember about you on that stage at Washington, D.C., as I was watching you speak backstage was I was watching you and I was like, wow, this guy actually looks like he's having fun. He actually looks like he's enjoying himself. And I say that, Marcus, because I think you probably know this as well at the events you speak at. I've seen plenty of amazing speakers, men and women who are talented. And when they get to that stage and they'll deliver a great 45 minute or hour keynote. And in many ways, you can see it's labor for them. It's work for them and they're good at it, but it's work. But I was watching you and I was like, oh, this dude is having fun. Is is that fair to say when you're on stage engaging with folks that that you're having a good time? Yes, if I if I know the subject that I'm speaking on and I'm passionate about it, and if I'm prepared, then jumping up on stage and getting people to engage with it, getting people excited about it is is really fun for me. Um, and I wouldn't do it if it wasn't. Um, it's, uh, it's one of those funny things where people think that sort of work is the opposite of life and you have to balance work and life and life is good and work is bad and life fills you up and work empties you out. And, and yet my experience isn't that at all. Work is part of life and boy, you better make sure that the work that you do actually fills you up. And so for me on stage, it's part of, uh, it's part of my fuel. It's, it's not a something to be uh, to be endured for me. It's something to be um, reveled in. Otherwise, um, my life's going to empty me out. I love hearing you say, "If I'm prepared," because I can think about the times that I've struggled the most on stages or in my life. And the one thing consistent with all of that is typically not being prepared. Um, of course, we talked about your background and much of your background is being a researcher. And I think most of yeah. us will think about, you know, the books that you write, which all will be listed in the show notes. And they have this idea of a researcher behind closed doors, wearing glasses, maybe wearing a tweed jacket and maybe pensive and quiet. But is it fair to say over the course of your career, you've, you've surprised people like they read about this work from Marcus Buckingham and then they meet him in person. They're like, oh, he's not what I thought. He's actually dynamic. He has some amazing charisma. Has that kind of gone against what most in your field, uh, I guess, people presume them to be? Well, yes, I suppose so. I, um, I'm like all of us in the sense that I don't really have a neat personality that fits into some sort of caricature. Um, Like you, I've got um, forces that pull me sometimes in different directions. And the challenge of my life is always to find a way to integrate these different forces healthily. And um, for me, I, I get a kick out of research. I like data. I like being able to know how numbers can show you what's real and what's beautiful about life. And I like a lot of time by myself. Like I, I just, that's just how I'm wired. And at the same time, I like bring things to life. I like, if you find a discovery that, that there is joy for me in, in, in finding ways to get people to engage with it. And so it's kind of, on stage, off stage, on stage, off stage, on stage, off stage for all my entire life. 
two forces pulling me in these really different directions. Tell me this, you mentioned numbers being able to show you what's real. And, you know, we're not, we're not going to get into politics at all today, but for me, especially as a journalist, but actually as, as a news junkie, look, I spent 10 years as a reporter correspondent in New York City. And, you know, a lot of my stories led with numbers. When you look at numbers in the midst of COVID-19 uh, and all that's going on, how, how blown away are you sometimes, if at all, how different people <laughs> interpret the same numbers? Well, Yes, the the challenge we have here is that the numbers that we're looking at don't actually focus on the individual. And we um, we look past the individual to numbers um, at our peril. At the moment, the most important numbers for us have to relate to people's feeling of confidence. And if our city governments are state governments or federal governments don't think about the individual's feeling of lack of confidence around their safety, then every other number is irrelevant. So as we think about opening schools this fall, the question that we should be diving into is what numbers should we be looking at that would help us know whether or not parents will be confident, truly confident in knowing that their child A is going to be safe in school and B isn't going to be bringing something back inside our home and our family that is dangerous. What can we look at that would help us know about that? Once we know that, then we can start making intelligent decisions about whether or not we should open schools. I'm not seeing any of that. We've looked at the macro and we talk a lot about the macro, but we've missed the micro. And so as a, as a result, we've just got, we've got people making pronouncements about numbers that are looking um, beyond where they should be looking. We should be looking at the individuals, what their feeling of confidence is, and then trying to figure out the best numbers to help us know whether that confidence is going up, whether that confidence is going down, and if it is going down, what we can do to build it back up. That's a good reframe to think about the individual from a confidence perspective, because listen, as a, as a dad of four-year-old twins, uh, you're speaking to me directly right now to my wife and I, as we think about the decisions yeah. we're going to make for this fall. And the word confidence is one that, uh, you know, I, I struggle with when I read things and I consider myself a smart guy that can you know read any type of article or research paper and break it down to its nuts and bolts. Um, but I see exactly what you're talking about before we go too deep that direction. I, I want to ask you a question about something a little bit different. And I'm reading from, I don't know if this came from an article Marcus or from your bio, but you said something to the extent of, Rules must be broken and discarded because they stifle the originality and uniqueness, the strengths that can enable all of us to achieve our highest performance. Now, in many ways, you're talking about the workplace there. And as I look at that, I look at you, as I look at your books, I look about the things you've written about over the years, I, I look at your talks and your interviews I, I've researched. And in many ways, I would, not knowing you personally, would think Marcus Buckingham is a rule breaker. But then I look at your background and I saw prior to you starting your own company and even before the books and before the world got to know you, you know, you had two decades, two decades working at the Gallup organization internally. So I wonder how much of a struggle was it, if at all, for you uh, during that time as someone that, you know, talks about rule breakings today to spend that time, if you will, behind the scenes, or did you see it for what it was? You you were developing muscles before you came out to start your own company and do what you're doing today. Well, Gallup was run by a guy called Don Clifton at the time. And 
Um, he's since passed away in, in 2003, but um, Don was my mentor. And um, Don, uh, Don was really the founder of positive psychology. He was, he was the person who really said, we should be studying what's right with people rather than what's wrong with people. And him and Marty Seligman, who was the president of the American Psychological, Psychological Association, were, was, were, he was super influential on Marty in terms of thinking through what is psychology missing? Uh, we know a lot about pathology and psychosis and neurosis, but we don't really know very much about joy or happiness. Um, so Don was really on the forefront of all that. And as part of that, he had an approach to business that was um, very, very empowering. So at a very young age, he would say, look, go do it, go do it. I don't know, you know what decisions and choices you're going to make, but I've seen the talent that you have and I trust it. So he was king of the idea that you give people opportunities to go do their thing before they're ready. Mm. And the act of doing it makes them ready. They're never ready. No one's ever ready. So instead you just throw them in to the amphitheater and wish them the best of luck. And I, I had that experience at Gallup for 17 years and loved it, loved it, loved it. Then he passed away and I had a slightly different relationship with his son, who's now the chairman, who's was a good chap. But that's when I thought, well, now's the time for me to go and, and do this myself. Um, so Gallup was a very odd company in terms of the amount of space that it gave you. That's fascinating. What a great reminder just to, to go do it. And I think about many of the workplaces I have the opportunity to, to consult with, to do work with. And that's one thing they definitely are not telling their people uh, is right. to, to go do it. They're going the, the opposite direction. And of course, you write about this work and, and why it's so important to talk about the art of doing it. And it, it, it will make you ready. Um, and just briefly, uh, if, if folks are listening, which they are, obviously, if they hear their accent, uh, I know they're probably thinking maybe you're from Pennsylvania or Rhode Island. R- Rhode Island, definitely. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious, um, You just briefly, you found yourself in the States. How? Did I read that you briefly lived and worked in, in Lincoln, Nebraska? I did, yeah. I um, <clears throat> My dad uh, was the basically the head of HR for a company that had 7,000 pubs. Um, and his job was to select pub managers because the beer in pubs is the same everywhere, um, as you know, uh, as you may know. In England, it's all the same. It's all warm and you don't go to a pub because of the quality or lack thereof of its beer. You go because of the ambiance, because the feeling, because the vibe. And the person who is really influential in the vibe and making that pub feel a certain way is the pub manager. And um, so my dad went charging around looking for a companies are in, in the world that could help him how do you select really good pub managers because the the pub manager um lives in the pub with their with their family and are hugely influential and so he charged around and he found this company uh gallup actually in lincoln nebraska that was in the business i mean obviously gallup we know because of the polling but but gallup was a um, a psychometric research company which really means how do you measure things about a human it could be their polling preference, but it could be their engagement. It could be their strengths, their talents. And so Gallup had a whole business around pre-employment selection, building instruments to select people who may have the talents necessary for succeeding in a certain job. And so he brought them over in 1983, he brought Gallup over to start studying pub managers. And although the folks from, uh, from Gallup had no idea what a pub was, they had a whole research methodology and I got to meet 
all of these people doing this incredibly interesting um, focus groups and then something called a, um, a concurrent validity study to try to measure the right questions that would pick out people's strengths as a pub manager. And I was fascinated. I was going up to university at the time and the chairman of Gallup, whose name was Don Clifton, said, well, why don't you, why don't you just come over in the summers um, while you're at university and um, you can learn about applied psychology? And so I did. And at the end of my college years, they were like, well, you want to come over and work in Lincoln, Nebraska for a year? And I was so enamored of the work itself. I didn't know Lincoln, Nebraska very well. And it was very, very different from Cambridge where I went to school. But I was like, you know what? Yeah, I, uh, the work itself is fascinating for me. And I can't get anywhere else. Um, and so I went, ostensibly it was for a year, but then the economy went south in England in, in 87, 88, 89. And so I ended up saying for, um, well, forever, not in Lincoln, Nebraska forever, but for six years. Okay. So now it's all starting to come together, uh, with Gallup and Clifton, et cetera. Yeah. And I'm just yeah. imagining your classmates at, at Cambridge and you're going, where are you going? What are you going to do after graduation? Well, I'm going to Lincoln, Nebraska, not New York. I know it was, not it Chicago. was weird. Listen, as a guy who spent a lot of time in Nebraska over the years, I'm just imagining you in this town initially. That's amazing. Well, let's shift gears and get to the question of the podcast, the best thing. And and I'm curious for you, uh, Marcus, you've lived uh, our living, a remarkable advice and and that resume and everything I read in the intro is, is super, super impressive. But I am curious if there's something in your life that wouldn't necessarily appear on a resume or a bio or come up in, in casual conversation uh, that has had a profound effect on, on who you are today that maybe could be one of those best things? Well, yeah, and if you ask it that way, um, I had a terrible stammer growing up. So I couldn't speak until the age of about 12. Um, I couldn't say anything. Nothing that would come out of my mouth was fluent in any way. And with a name like Marcus Buckingham, it's the longest name in the world. <laughs> So I couldn't even say my name. Um, I was asked to speak in chapel in my school when I was 12 by the headmaster of the school, which at the time I remember thinking, what a cruel thing to do because it's just going to be, you know, a five-minute piece is going to be stretched into 50 minutes of suffering. And I told my parents the night before that it was going to be a disaster. And I suppose if I was a kid today, my parents would have immediately rung up the headmaster and said, how dare you? And you can't humiliate my kid this way. And, but my mom must have wanted to do that to the nth degree, but didn't. And um, the next morning I woke up and, you know, it's all your friends too. And it's 400 people in the chapel. And it, gosh, I can still, now that I think about it, my palms get sweaty. But I woke up, walked to school, walked into the chapel. And when, I mean, I'd done the piece the night before in a practice with the headmaster and it was a disaster. I walked up that morning, turned and faced the audience, and I saw all these faces, and I started to talk, and I was just reading a piece, and the words came out perfectly, fluently. I'd been to every single speech pathologist you could imagine, and had gotten worse, actually, not better. And yet, standing up there talking to everybody, it just, every word came perfectly, and I got a sort of disembodied feeling where you step out of yourself and you go, what the heck? is going on and i kind of realized as i was looking at everybody that 
unlike most people, when everybody's eyes are on me, for whatever reason, and I still don't know what the reason is, I get more fluent, not less. Mm. My brain opens up. It doesn't close up. All those, those firing synapses that spasm and caused me to not be able to speak stopped doing that somehow. And the eyes of people, the 400 people, so I don't know, 800 eyes looking at me was a source of energy and power strength for me and i sat down that my entire class was like stunned and i annoyed i think because i'm sure they were waiting to just tease the living daylights out of me <laughs> and um i then went you know what i should do from this point on i should just pretend that i'm talking to one person in the schoolyard i should just pretend that i'm talking to 400 mm. and and i'll see what happens and i did that and in a week the stammer went away um, and after a decade of sort of going to every single speech pathologist known to man or woman, it went away in a week. And it's been my far the most significant thing that's affected my life. Because prior to that moment, I had all these thoughts rattling around in my head. I just couldn't express them. I couldn't really do anything. And then after that, I was like, wow, although other than death, public speaking is the most common fear that people have for whatever stupid reason, it doesn't work that way for me. It works the other way. And I was aware enough at 12 to go, this is really significant. Something about this context of seeing the faces of all these people works for me. And I don't know why, but it is a thing. It's a real thing. And I can use it to overcome this debilitating weakness. That's amazing to hear. And I'm sure anyone, if they don't know you personally, who comes across you and has seen you speak on a stage would never in a million years think that that's something that you experienced up until you were, were 12 years. years. I, I want to talk about that because a lot of people, I mean, I'm sure they're really fascinated by that. Like, wow, this guy, he rose to the occasion and in, in those penultimate moments, he, he rose and didn't and didn't cave. I am curious and, and not, I'm not as a, uh, a therapist by no means or psychologist. I'm curious, being that you weren't unable to speak a lot until you're 12 years old, do you think that I'm guessing your observational skills and the information that you took in up to that age were, were huge because you had to be super in tune with what was going on around you? I, I'm, I'm just, I, I think about that and I'm like, I wonder how much that contributed to the work you do today as a researcher, those 12 years, if you will, of silence before you became empowered to speak. Um, yes, I think that's true, but I don't know that that's true. I think I would be this way anyway. I have always been interested in everybody's patterns that live within them. And I'm a little leery of, of explaining those patterns as part of your biography, uh, as opposed to your biology. Mm. So I think I'm observational. I think I've always been observational. I live a lot in my own mind. I'm taking things in all the time. I watch and watch. I hate parties. I hate mingling. I hate chatting. I, I like interviewing. I like asking questions and shutting up. I'm alive when that happens. I love doing that with anyone. Um, uh, my first 
assignment at Gallup actually was interviewing housekeepers to see what's amazing about the best housekeepers. So it doesn't really matter what job you're doing. I, I'm fascinated by it. But even prior to that, I was just always an observer. Um, and I don't know if that was because I stammered and couldn't speak or whether I was just an observer. I think it's the latter. I think I was just that way. I don't know. I don't have data on it, but I feel like I was just that way. My biography didn't create that pattern. It probably amplified it. I couldn't say anything. So all I could do is sit in the corner and watch. But anyway, I like to sit in the corner and watch. And I still like to sit in the corner and watch. I appreciate your, what you said. And you said, I don't know that that's true. And, you know, in this society nowadays, I'll speak broadly. We, we, we think we know a lot of things to be true. And even mm-hmm. just reminding ourselves that we don't necessarily have data on everything, but we accept some things to be truths. Um, you mentioned something earlier, uh, just a moment ago, rather, about, you know, asking questions and then shutting up. Uh, Marcus, I can think back to, you know, my 10 plus years in New York City uh, as a reporter and correspondent with different television networks and probably some of the best feedback I ever got from one of my executive producers over the years when he was watching me conduct an interview with someone is after the interview, he said to me, and I guess I'm paraphrasing now, he said, you need to shut up. You need to shut up and stop talking. And essentially what he was saying was be okay with the silence. And I frankly was for a long time was not okay with, with silence when I was interviewing someone. I felt like I had to you know, fill in every gap. Could, could you talk a little bit, whether it be from a personal perspective or even from a research perspective, how important being willing to, to shut up is and, and that silence and what that can bring out of others that you're speaking to? Yes. Well, one of the questions that... Um in terms of building strengths assessments to figure out where people's strengths are, you experiment with lots and lots and lots of different questions. One of the questions that we experimented with as we were trying to learn about empathy as a strength was this question. The question was, when you're talking to another person, how do you know if you're doing a good job of listening? And you just ask that open-ended question. When you're talking to another person, how do you know if you're doing a good job of listening? You can imagine all the possible answers to that question. Well, if I can repeat back to them what they said, well, if I mirror their body language, well, you, know, you, could, you could imagine any number of different quote unquote good answers to that question. But it turns out that the people who have empathy all say the same thing to that question, whatever, what race or what gender or what age or what nationality, what religion they are, it doesn't matter. If they have empathy, they all say the same thing to that question. How do you know if you're doing a good job of listening? Their answer is simply this. I know I'm doing a good job of listening if the other person keeps talking. Mm. And what you realize is that there's a certain person who understands that, that you judge yourself as a listener by the actions of the other person, not yourself. It's not whether you can analyze what they're saying. It's not whether you can repeat it back. It's not whether or not you give them the right feedback. It's none of that. It's not about you. It's about them. And so as an interviewer like you or, or me, you're always trying to figure out how do I get the other person to keep talking? Now, as it happens, you, I mean, I'm glad, I guess, that your manager said what she said or he said, but you have, you know, sparing your blushes, but your way of communicating is very easy and very open and, and yet you're very fluent. So uh, as a person on the receiving end of you, 
I don't mind your words because your words are easy and fluid and natural. And so if I was your boss at the time, I wouldn't perhaps have said it quite that way because I like the way that you fill the space. At the same time, I would say, if we're going to judge your job by the outcome, the outcome is the other person is going to share stuff. <laughs> you might want to figure out how the other person can share stuff. Um, so whatever your style is as a listener, if the other person keeps talking, you're doing a good job of it. Well, now I feel validated and I feel healed right now. I'm going to take that sound bite and send it to them. Uh, <laughs> but no, I, pre- I appreciate you saying that. And I love that. If the other person keeps talking, you know, you're doing a great job of listening. Mm-hmm. What a great reminder for, for all of us. And heck, man, that's a great reminder for me in my household. Uh, what a, a reminder <laughs> I needed to hear right now. I want to get to this. This this will be the last question for us today. And I really appreciate you taking time to have this conversation and and share what you have, Marcus. We talked uh, a few moments ago about you not speaking uh, and having that stammer until you were roughly 12 years old and having that really powerful moment of being able to speak to your, your full class. You're a guy that I don't know how many times you speak on the stage over the course of a standard year, but I know it's a lot. I know you're in demand and people love your message. Uh, like me, essentially, that's not happening as it once did in the midst of COVID-19. I'm sure you're doing virtual talks and different engagements, but you're not in front of 5,000 people like I saw you uh, back in February in Washington, D.C. So I'm curious for you, with this time not being on stages, not getting on planes, not going through the hotel check-in process and having those conversations with people behind uh, backstage, et cetera, what have you learned about yourself uh, during this other type of, of silence that we're experiencing right now? Well, one of the things that you realize during a time like this is just how much you run. Mm. You're just running all the time. And when you're running all the time, the wind is whipping past your ears and you can't hear very well. And your vision is blurred because you're moving so fast so you don't see very well. So you realize that at a time like this, what, what are people calling this? The great pause? Well, it's a, good, it's a good time to stop and look and stop and look at yourself and stop and look at the people that you work with and care about. And so what I've done since I saw you last is um, I took the strengths assessment that we built um, a few years ago now called Standout. Um, I built it with um, Harvard Business Review and um, it's a 15 minute strengths assessment designed to help you begin to figure out where you are at your best. And of course, during this time, people's sense of themselves kind of um, gets disoriented because they've lost their rituals and they've lost their rhythms of going to work and so forth. And, and so we can lose our sense of power. Well, what better time to stop and go, wait a minute, no matter what's going on around me, I do have unique and distinct strengths. Mm -hmm. I can see myself. And of course, what a great time to make those sort of connections with those that you love and care about. Why, why wouldn't now be the time when you really look at the people on your team or you really, really look at the people that you're sharing your house with? Because you, you can't love what you can't see. Seeing and loving are really closely connected. Mm. Um, and so what a great time to stop and see. So I, I went to um, HBR and I uh, obviously talked to the folks at ADP and went, let's just give this away. Let's, let's give it away completely. And let's give people a chance to uh, really understand in a credible way what their particular strengths are. 
at this time. And so we've been doing a lot of giving away, which has been tremendous. Um, it, it's a time for, yes, it's a time for reflection, but it's also a time for seeing. And so I'm so happy that we've actually got a tool where we could say to people, um, why don't you use this time to ruminate on where are you at your best? And then why don't you give it away to the people that you love? Um, so we've had close to a hundred thousand people take it now. I mean, we've had 10 million people take it over the years, but just in the last couple of months, we've just given it away and a hundred thousand people have said, thank you very much. So I'm very happy that, um, I was able to do that and I'm going to continue to do that. I might even keep it free forever because, um, we live in a world right now, certainly where an awful lot, particularly here in the US, an awful lot of the racial injustice that we see in this society is a function of individual psychological weakness. Mm. Uh, when you don't know who you are as an individual, you start trying to come together in groups and define yourself as an individual by these other groups outside of you that are not like you, that don't think like you or look like you. And so an awful lot, not only by any means, but a lot of what causes racial prejudice or religious prejudice around the world is a function of psychological weakness. And so if, if I can help use this time to get people to think and define themselves in words that are not dependent on gender or religion or race or age, but I just like, no, no, no. Just who are you as an individual? Uh, you don't need to, to come together in a group to get strength from the group because you don't know who you are. Let's help you figure out who you are and then figure out how you can contribute through who you are. That's healing for our society. And so I'm, I'm kind of on a mission at the moment to go, I mean, yes, we need to fix systemic racism in this world. Um, and yes, we need to think about restitution and reparations and finally dealing with the, the sick threads that do run through some parts of our world. But at the same time, we are all individuals and let's start being rigorous and detailed and vivid in describing the uniqueness of each one of us as individuals. That won't solve everything, but we won't solve anything without it. What a beautiful way to put it. And I appreciate you and acknowledging you for being willing to share that strengths finder for free. And I'll make sure I share a link to that. And you mentioned the book standout, which I have right next to me right now is when I first came across you and your work. And I equally, and lastly, want to acknowledge you for the work you've done on, on social media in such a unique time that we've been in. I've been blown away how different people are deciding to share and to use their, their, their platform that is social media and the work you've done with talking about strengths against racism, the work you've done, if I'm correct, doing black entrepreneur spotlights, these mm. things that frankly probably wouldn't have happened if we didn't come to this, this horrible place where we are right now, where there is a reckoning, uh, where some healing is going to happen. Uh, I'm, I'm just so glad to see individuals like yourself that a lot of people could say, oh, it'd be easy for him or for her to stay silent, but you've done the exact opposite. So I appreciate you for that. And Marcus, I really appreciate you for taking time for, for being on the Best Thing podcast, everything we shared for the listeners, uh, all those links to your books, to the Strength Finder, et cetera, social media will be in the show notes. So Marcus Buckingham, thank you once again for coming on. Gosh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Best Thing Podcast with Antonio Neves. Join us next week for more stories that'll help you see the world through a new lens. For more resources, go to theantonioneves.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. 